Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of Epic. I am currently in Sonoma County at the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center for a conference on rewilding. What the heck is it? How about folks introduce who they are, who they work for? My name is Pete Aladona. I'm a professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Barbara. I'm an environmental historian by training, but my work focuses on human relations with wildlife. Currently, I'm the founder and facilitator of the California Grizzly Research Network. My name is Brock Dahlman, and I'm with the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center and our Water Institute to bring back the beaver campaign. I'm a wildlife biologist by birth and a little bit of academic training as well. And I'm Kate Lundquist. I co-direct the Water Institute at the Austin Arts and Ecology Center and our Bring Back the Beaver campaign. Perhaps we can try to create some sort of definition of what we're talking about. Brock? I mean, I think that in this word rewilding, so there's wilding, and the idea of wilding in and of itself is a challenge to define. And then there's the part of re, which implies that there some was wild and then there's something less wild and we're trying to bring back wild. So rewilding is really looking at landscape level connectivity and the return of functional processes and various species and how do we create social and ecological conditions to allow those species to be present in the ecosystem, provide the services they provide, and be just intrinsically whole in and of themselves. One of my colleagues tell me that the definition of rewilding was helping nature heal. That's a very simple way of saying what Brock just said in much more detail. That I really like is the helping part, and that means getting people involved in really reconnecting with nature. John Davis, Rewilding Institute Director. That phrase, helping nature heal, which I like so much, Dave Foreman liked the even shorter phrase, wilderness recovery. What I use sometimes is giving wildlife back to the land and the land back to wildlife. We also need to be looking at the habitat that supports those elements. So if we're thinking about a species that has been missing for a good number of years in California, the California grizzly bear, how does one plan for grizzlies to come back to the state? Well, one of the reasons that I'm here this week is to learn from friends and colleagues who've done so much to try to bring back other species that have been lost. Right now, we're in an era and we've got reintroductions happening all over the place. And that's because we've learned a lot participating in this and bringing their experiences and expertise. Now we're at the point, I think, where bringing back some creatures now seems like something that that we can potentially do. There are no current plans to bring grizzlies back to California. From the ecological perspective, historical perspective, political, economic perspective, it's possible. It's really a choice, but it's not something that's impossible. And so the goal of my group has been to try to provide a basis of information that can enable people to have an intelligent and civil and evidence-based conversation about this and to start down that potentially long and arduous road of thinking about bringing our state mascot back. So thinking about 30 by 30, so this is the international, national, statewide effort to conserve 30% of our lands by 2030. How is this movement fitting into your idea of doing rewilding work? The geography is, we're talking about, say, 30% of 
California, which is 100 million acres. So there's a 30 million acre question. Where those 30 million acres are and what habitats and the distribution is a really interesting piece. And the, the science of conservation biology and corridors and connectivity and biodiversity, which acreages are already so-called conserved or preserved and what would be added on to is a really fascinating opportunity. Then where of those habitats, those areas to, to be conserved, what of those lands has suitable beaver habitat or had suitable beaver habitat, has habitat that if we help to heal the land, we can work with the beavers that are there to coexist and help them be better beavers there or prepare the land by doing restoration to help bring back the beavers. Beaver restoration is one of the tools in the toolbox towards this process of conservation that could just help augment, reinforce, enhance the pace and scale of the effectiveness of the 30% of the lands that would be restored. So it's a, it's really just a, an enhancing tool in the toolbox to really support some of what the aspirations are of why we would want to conserve 30% of the land and the values and the access and the environmental services that society would benefit from and thus values in putting forward this program. I think beaver just help us get to those goals a whole lot faster wherever beaver can be happy beaver in those places. I would also add that it's helped give a frame for our state agencies to really invite nature-based solution conversations. And so Beaver really figures prominently into that. And we have found that our agency leaders have been receptive to the conversation because an organism like Beaver, who creates these massive wetlands and maintains them and is able to benefit from in all these different landscapes and on many different scales really helps meet those 30 by 30 goals and supports those agencies in, in achieving them in a meaningful way in a quick fashion, which we really need to be doing right now. One of the most interesting things related to 30 by 30 is that depending on how you calculate it, California already has something like 25% of its land in conservation areas. The remaining 5% is very significant, but then there are all these other lands that might not end up in conservation areas per se, but that are really, really important for so many different aspects of these broader goals. And so what I was really pleased to see when I read the 30 by 30 pathways document that the resources agency put out is that there is a focus on not only conserving more land, but in developing more tools to protect and restore lands that don't fall within conservation areas proper. So that's a really encouraging thing to me. And I think it's a really important part of this bigger picture. What is giving you hope for rewilding in the state right now? What are the actions, who are the people, who are the players that are moving forward this idea and turning it into reality? There's a, a professor named David Orr who teaches at Oberlin College out in Ohio. And I appreciate when the word hope is asked and he tries to define hope. One offering for hope is that it's a verb with its sleeves rolled up. And what I really appreciate about the rewilding movement is it's really a diverse movement that has a conceptual framework, an inspirational framework, a proactive, restorative, participatory framework of re-engaging people in collaboration with the aspirations of restoration or of water quality or biodiversity or bringing back carnivores. And so I have a lot of hope in that sense because rewilding is a, an opportunity for an actual expression of diverse people who are literally rolling up their sleeves and doing the work and either studying the work to be done, implementing the work, working on policy, working at education levels and doing that. And it feels to me that there's a moment in our social time right now where the need for 
this hope with the reality of climate change, of extreme wildfire, extreme drought or extreme flood, the weather whiplash, the instability of the system as a result of the land use or land abuse of the last several hundred years of settler colonialism has created a less than resilient ecosystem and climate change is just showing up as a symptom, as expression of that. So hope and resiliency where rewilding and 30 by 30 offers a, a way to go. It's going back to the future. It's a forward, active, engaged suite of skills and tactics and strategies is the most hopeful thing I can think of. Bringing back the beaver, bringing back the grizzly bear, bringing back condor, bringing back pronghorn. It's a kin-centric opportunity, this idea of kin-centrism of Enrique Salmon or Dennis Martinez, an indigenous worldview. We are in states of humility and relationship with And that brings more joy and beauty in my life to be in relationship with our more than than human kin. I feel hopeful that it is possible to change state wildlife agencies' attitudes and perceptions around certain species, in our case, the beaver. In the time that we've been working, there has been a huge change in attitudes and perceptions. We're now getting to support the initiation and inauguration of a new beaver restoration program being funded by the state and led by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And that that is possible and that it can be done in a collaborative way with a lot of different stakeholders and just a lot of grassroots efforts that went into it for many years leading up to that inspires me to continue this work and to support others in doing the same with the species and processes that they're working with. I've been impressed by how far and how fast we've moved in such a short period of time. At one point, the state of California was denying that beavers were really present in almost any part of the state. And this was coming from our State Department of Fish and Wildlife. And y'all, Brock and Kate, were critical in, in developing research to show that no, in fact, beavers were here. They were actually widespread throughout the state in, in a variety of different ecosystems. How long ago was it that our state was one denying that beavers were really present? How much ground have we made now that they are funding beaver restoration work and conflict avoidance so that we have the beneficial effects of beavers more widespread? What year was that paper? Yeah, as you mentioned, so a, a group of us published two peer-reviewed papers in the California Department of Fish and Wildlife Journal in 2012. We did a historic ecology paper of beaver in the Sierra Nevada. And then in 2013, a, another group of us got together and did a second paper on historic ecology of beaver in the coastal area and Bay Area of California. So what's interesting about Californian beaver is the trapping of beaver started very early, and it actually started with the folks on the maritime fur trade, primarily the Russians and some of the sea captains. So in the 1780s, all the way up to early 1800s, here in Sonoma County, we have Fort Ross, which is the Russian fort. And they were primarily looking for sea otter and fur seal. Imagine 80,000 fur seal a year were being taken off the Farallons in the, in the early 1800s. But any other fur they could get, beaver, mink, trading with indigenous peoples, they, they cleaned out the coast really quickly before records were being taken. And then we get what many people think of as the mountain men type moment, the Jedediah Smiths, the Walkers, the Carsons, but they really don't show up till 1828, 30, and they then decimate the mountains and the valleys really quickly. So by the 1840s, the fur rush, as Dr. Rick Landman calls it, precedes the gold rush 
by many decades. So by the time these gold miners folks show up, whatever beaver were left got nuked pretty quick. So by the 1840s, we didn't have beaver much. And the only science that really shows up on beavers is really kind of in the 1930s, an amazing zoologist named Joseph Grinnell, who worked on mammals, and ultimately based on the limited data they had in the 1930s, pieced together a sense that beaver were only limited to the Colorado River, parts of the Klamath Basin, and the Delta, San Joaquin, Sacramento. And then that misunderstanding promulgated from the 40s and 50s, even though the department relocated and translocated beavers for 30 years in the state. And then after 1950, we have what we call the big beaver blind spot and progress post-World War II, big dams, big pumps, big electricity. We don't need beavers. They're actually a nuisance. We're now occupying what was beaver habitat to farm and put cities on. And we have a 70-year moment of a amnesia around that beaver were native, the extent that they were native, and that there were any benefits to them. And that relationship with beaver was mainly a lethal relationship with beaver, that they're a nuisance, that they're mostly not native, and that we would depredate them because they're actually standing in the way of progress. It's only been really in the last decade, five years. The first paper was 2012. Some of us had a decade before that getting to that moment of 2012 paper, and we went from needing to publish a paper that, yes, they were mostly native through the bulk of the state, to the governor's proposal to fund five permanent positions and create a beaver restoration program to be managed by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, permanent staff, create a beaver management plan, and to recognize them as a climate-smart, nature-based solution. Peter, hearing this story, what are the lessons that you are taking away for how we do rewilding at a broader scale beyond just beavers? So we're here meeting this week, and I was one of the folks who requested that you all recount this history of the beaver because I feel like we have a lot to learn from it, and I know that I do. When I hear this story, it makes me think that there are a surprising number of of resonances and similarities. On the eve of the gold rush in California, let's say 1848, the estimate is that there were about 110,000 people in California. That number had gone down from something like 350,000 a couple centuries earlier. And there were something like 10,000 grizzly bears. So there was a ratio of about one grizzly bear for every 11 people in California. Over the next one human lifetime, about 75 years, they were all completely annihilated. It was just people going out there, largely a pretty small group of white men with guns, traps, and poisons, taking it upon themselves to eradicate this species at a time before laws had been passed to protect it. And why were they killing grizzlies? It doesn't sound like it was probably for the fur, like in the case of the beaver. Grizzly parts were used and sold for sure, and also live animals were sold as well. And you can find advertisements for them in newspapers in San Francisco, for example, in the 1850s and 60s. But largely it was an attitude, a value system, in which these animals were assumed to be pests. They were assumed to be in the way of establishing a civilized livestock and agricultural industry in California. And frankly, they had to be eradicated. And for some settlers, sort of lumped grizzly bears in with with indigenous people and other aspects of native California as elements that needed to be removed from the landscape in order to create a different kind of society. After grizzly bears disappear by the 1920s, there is another period of more than half a century in which very little happens at all. And then slowly people start to talk about it a little bit again over the last couple decades as part of this larger rewilding discussion. One of the things that really interests me about the beaver story is the extent to which our state and federal agencies which are staffed by people who are passionate and dedicated and are spending their lives doing this kind of work, as institutions 
tend to be extremely conservative in what they are willing to do. And so what that means is that the institutions have to be pushed to think about what the next step is in the future. When I hear the beaver story, I think that maybe the grizzly story is about 20 years behind. <laughs> so so let's, let's get a world ready for grizzly reintroduction. What do we have to do for California to, to meet this moment? So there are a lot of things we would need to do. Some of them are technical and, and some of them are broader. So one of the most important things we would need to do is we would need to get the Fish and Wildlife Service to rewrite its recovery plan for grizzly bears in the lower 48 U.S. states. The current recovery plan was approved in 1993. It's supposed to be updated every five years. It's never been updated and there are not currently plans to update it. The recovery plan as it's written, if it were to succeed 100%, we'd end up with something like 3,000 grizzly bears in the lower 48 U.S. states. Northern Rockies and a few in the North Cascades. That would be down from an estimated population in 1800 of about 50,000. So the way the recovery plan is written right now, recovery is essentially defined as a 94% decline, 50,000 to 3,000. We would need to rethink what recovery means. We need to do an environmental impact statement. We need to get the agencies on board. We need to continue to engage the tribes and foster tribal leadership on this. We need to work in local communities to prepare people for something that in communities that might be close to reintroduction sites might seem a little bit frightening or at least new to folks. And there are a variety of other steps too. I think that these are really well described in the experiences and the literature on reintroduction and large carnivore conservation. We know what we need to do. It's just a matter of starting to walk that path. The Rewilding Podcast. Now I'm bringing in my next set of guests to continue our talk on rewilding California. Welcome, everybody. How about we go around and introduce ourselves? I'm Tasha Commandant. I'm the Conservation Science Director at the Pepperwood Foundation. I'm Tiffany Yap. I'm a senior scientist and wildlife activity advocate at the Center for Biological Diversity. And I am Scott Sampson, the Executive Director at the California Academy of Sciences. So we are all here at a conference on rewilding. This might be the first time that listeners to the Eco News will hear this term. So I I want me to perhaps start off with a, a definition. Who wants to be so brave as to try to tackle what the heck is rewilding? There's lots and lots of definitions, but we talked about one earlier, which is healing the land, healing the earth. But I would say beyond that, it's about strengthening the health of ecosystems, helping ecosystems recover functions that have been lost. I'll add that there's an emphasis on looking at the suite of species that have been on the landscape and looking for who's missing and how we can support the ecosystem in ways that will allow for those species to to come back and thrive on the landscape. To me, also a form of restoration to improve the health of the landscape and the ecosystem, but it's also for to improve the health of human communities. Does anybody want to give a a concrete example of what you would call rewilding action? It can be as simple as reintroducing a species that used to live in a place that no longer lives there. It's about pulling back animals. So bringing back beaver to landscapes has all kinds of ecological benefits. In more urban places, it can be as simple as planting native plants, which attract native insects, which attract native birds, which overall increases the biological diversity of that place. You work for the Pepperwood Foundation. Can you describe a little bit about Pepperwood and how 
you are thinking about the concept of rewilding specifically for your organization. Pepperwood is a nonprofit that's based in Sonoma County, and we're based on a 3,200-acre preserve that sits in the homeland of the Wapo people. We focus on education, connecting people to nature, and scientific research. We have a long-term monitoring of all aspects of climate change, wildlife, vegetation. We also engage the community in activities and arts and getting people connected again to the land. For us, we are really interested in making sure that our preserve doesn't become an island. We want to keep it connected to the surrounding landscapes, ridgelines, protected areas. There's lots of efforts around where we're at and even scaling regionally to stitch together our neighbors, work on teaching people the practices that they can do on their own properties or residences to promote co existence of wildlife. For example, we're working with North Bay Bear Collaborative to track black bears, to collect samples and understand the genetics of how many we have on the landscape. But we're also using this as a tool to engage with people, like have access to their properties and come on and talk to them about these species and, and their needs to stay connected and keep these landscapes permeable. Yours is a very kind of place-based cooperative model. Tiffany, the Center for Biological Diversity might be a a little bit different. It it is perhaps combative sometimes, may I say? It, and we like butting in. Yeah, right. Sometimes. And and I, I don't mean that as a criticism because I, I feel like my organization, Epic, is like a little mini center for biological diversity. We are at a regional scale, or you are at a national scale. So wholesale respect for for the center's work. But as someone who is not afraid to use the legal system, how do you perhaps conceive? of rewilding or the Center for Biological Diversity's contribution to a larger rewilding effort. Yeah, it is kind of interesting whenever I try to think about how to summarize some of the things that we're trying to do when we talk about rewilding. What's really great about the center is that we have multiple expertise on our team. So I'm a scientist, I have a background in environmental science. I have colleagues who are attorneys, I have colleagues who are media specialists, and we can all bring our brains together to try to find different ways to tackle these issues that we want to push or address. A lot of the times it's using legal tools. So like the California Environmental Quality Act or the California Endangered Species Act, that helps us fight for protections for species and habitats. So one example is our push to get mountain lions in Southern California and along the Central Coast listed under the California Endangered Species Act. What's great there is researchers have put together so much work that just shows that there are these subpopulations of mountain lions that are being genetically isolated really struggling to survive in an extinction vortex due to not only genetic isolation, but being hit by cars on roads, having rat poisons in their system, disease, be dying in wildfires because they're boxed in and they can't find ways to escape. And so really the issue there that we want to push for is improving connectivity, not just for mountain lions, but then also allowing other species to benefit from that connectivity and helping species that once were historically there return. That's one way we use California Endangered Species Act, but then we can also use the California Environmental Quality Act when developments are being proposed, sprawl developments in important connectivity areas and areas that are habitats for highly biodiverse systems and pushing those developments to do better, to think smarter and to find ways to safely coexist and protect what, what we have in terms of biodiversity, but also reconnect and allow things that we've pushed away to come back. So California Academy of Sciences, how do you perhaps conceive of your work 
further in the wild in the California Academy of Sciences is a natural history museum, an aquarium, a planetarium. It's got an indoor rainforest. We serve over a million people a year in the building and millions more online. But the bottom two floors holds about 36 million objects. We recently took on the purpose of regenerating the natural world. That is why we exist. We have three initiatives, one on California. And so we are actively working to rewild the state of California through a combination of science on the ground, and we have scientists doing this work, through education, scaling environmental learning, and through cross-sector collaboration bringing people together to create visions about what a rewilded future looks like and a pathway to get there. Natasha, as somebody who has to manage land, we are experiencing a changing climate. We can feel the effects of global warming, global climate change here in California, here in Sonoma County, I'm sure on your land. As somebody who has to deal with the effects of climate change, how does that influence your conception of what rewilding means. Are you planning for a different future for your property? Are you thinking about how forests might transition or ecosystems might transition for your land? Absolutely. We have a very active stewardship model where we are proactively working on forest restoration, for example, by protecting the oak woodlands we have, by thinning trees that might be encroaching and bringing prescribed fire back onto the landscape. So these forest restoration practices are going to be what serve the understory plants and the food sources for wildlife. So we take a very proactive approach to stewardship. We treat the preserve itself because, you know, it is just one place of many, but we try to treat it as a living laboratory for how we can test out practices, as well as use our science to try to understand how these practices really are having an impact on the landscape. So measuring with very detailed plots beforehand and afterhand, and then track that across time. So we've invested in a lot of instrumentation, sensors, and being able to quantify how the landscape is changing and how the practices that we're using can help support a whole variety of different wildlife species, plant species, and others that we care about. Scott, how can we learn from the collection from the California Academy of Sciences about how we might adapt to climate change? What does the historical record tell us and how can we learn from all of the data that you have to what the next version of California might look like? So no matter where you live in the world, if you look out the window, almost certainly you're looking at a degraded landscape that was much healthier 100 years ago, let alone 200 or 300 years ago. Conservation, therefore, isn't enough. We can conserve half the planet by 2050, sort of the half-Earth idea, and we're still going to have collapsing ecosystems. So we need to regenerate the health of those ecosystems. And how would you possibly do that? Well, you can base it on what they were like when they were healthy 100 or 200 years ago by looking in collections. So we can establish the ecological baselines of the past to see what health looked like, look at what's going on today, and use both of those data sets to figure out where we 
need to go in the future in a warming world. So we can predict with some degree of accuracy what places are going to be warmer, what the climatic impacts are going to be, and then we can decide how to rewild, which species do we bring back, how do we help that ecosystem become healthier and more resilient so that it can survive the changes that we know are coming. And the collections are the heart of this past, present, future approach to conservation. So Tiffany, as a staff scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, one of the things that the center is really well known for is its listing petitions, getting species protected under both the state and federal endangered species acts. But how do you make the decision on what species you move forward and try to get additional legal protections? Sometimes there is a lot of strategy involved and sometimes things just fall into place kind of naturally where it's like, oh, this species, like we need to move on this. And it has a lot to do with what information is available, what science is out there, what is the science telling us, where are these species located, what are the threats that these species are facing. If the species gets listed, what is the effect of that? Will we be able to protect how? Like, are they being threatened by a lot of vineyard development or a lot of sprawl development? Are they really limited range and like really at risk of basically local extirpation is the same thing as extinction for them? Like what are the different threats that they're facing? Like are there actions that we can take or are there actions that we can prevent to help the species survive in the long term? So those are some of the things that are considered when we're looking at what target species to protect. And I think with the mountain lion CESA petition, a lot of the scientific literature just fell into place. We have a paper saying there's an extinction vortex for these two populations in Southern California. There was a genetic mapping of the subpopulations in California. And then mountain lions are a charismatic megafauna, iconic, a lot of people love them or hate them. There is a lot of love for them. Protecting the mountain lion, an umbrella species, can can go a long way in helping to protect other species too. And my hope is the CESA petition for the mountain lion really helps to move connectivity, not just for wide-ranging species, but also for a lot of species that require local connectivity. My heart will always be with amphibians, so particularly <laughs> salamanders. I have lots of lots of love for them. I, they were, I studied them in grad school. And you know, there's a lot of animals that need both water and upland habitat. And so like having that connectivity at a local scale and in this wide ranging scale, I think will do so much for the ecosystems that we want to keep healthy. This is a crossover collaborative effort with the Rewilding Podcast, a product of the Rewilding Institute. Many thanks to my colleague John Davis for his help in producing this show. Join us again on This Time and Channel next week for more environmental news from the north coast of California.